theyeshiva.net. One of the well-known Chelem stories tells about a Jew from Chelem who had a problem. Each morning he would wake up and it took him a very long time to collect his items. He always misplaced his shoes, his hat, his jacket, his shirt, his keys, his pants, his suitcase, his attaché case. Until he got out of the house, it took him two hours every morning. What you would call in Yiddish a professional kratzer, a real procrastinator who could just never get it together. Present company, of course, excluded, but I'm sure some of you know about the concept, at least in theory. So he went to the rabbi of Chelem, and he said, I need your help. Two hours it takes me every morning to get out of the house. It's ridiculous. The rabbi says, I'll give you the best advice. Every night when you're in bed, before you go to sleep, take out a pen and paper and write down where everything is. The night before. And then in the morning, all you need to do is follow your notes, follow your list, and you will find everything instantaneously. Brilliant advice. The next night he gets into bed, takes out a piece of paper, takes a pen, and he writes down where everything is. My right shoe is here, my left shoe is here, my right sock is here, my left sock is here, my jacket is here, my shirt is here, my pants are here, my keys are here, etc., and then, of course, he comes to item number 10 and he says, and I, I am in bed. <laughs> he wakes up early in the morning, he's very excited, he jumps out of bed, washes his hands, and he takes the list out. Amachaya, instead of two hours, within three minutes, he had all of the items right there in front of him, and at last, excitingly, he comes to item number 10. And I, I am in bed. And he looks in the bed. And the poor man can't find himself in bed. He looks under the pillow. He looks on top of the pillow. He looks under the mattress, on top of the mattress. Under the bed, on top of the bed. Under the blankets, on top of the blankets. Searches everywhere. And he can't find himself. And the search goes on for three hours. In absolute desperation, he comes running to the rabbi again and he says, I don't understand you. I was trying to get your help. Today, it took three hours instead of two hours and I'm not even close to finding myself. You could end the story any way you wish. Perhaps after this class, you will choose to end the story maybe in a different way than you have ended it previously in your life. There's a mitzvah, a commandment in Parshish Kedoshim that's known as the mitzvah of Arlo. The mitzvah of Arlo is an interesting mitzvah. The Torah says that when you plant a tree, the first three years of produce are off limits to the Jew. This applies only to fruit trees, it doesn't apply to grain, it doesn't apply to legumes, it doesn't apply to vegetables. It applies only to fruit trees, that which has the definition of an eitz in halacha, for example. 
in terms of the blessing, Boire Priha Eitz, rather than Boire Priha Adama or Shahaka. And these types of trees, from when they're planted, you count three years, and those first three years, even if there are fruits that grow, which is unusual for a tree to produce fruit so swiftly, but even fruits that grow are forbidden for consumption, even forbidden to be sold to anybody, to a Jew or to a non-Jew, the fruits are to be disposed of, to be burnt. This is called Arla, which literally means plugged. The fourth year, the system was that the Jew would take the fruits and bring them to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim, where he or she would eat them in the holy city. The fifth year, Bashana HaChamishis, the fifth year, there were no limits on the fruits. Everybody would enjoy their fruits the way they would like to, wherever they want, in whatever form they want. The fourth year, they can also enjoy it as they want, but they had to bring it to Jerusalem. That is the halachas of Arla. The laws of Arla apply in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, not in the times of the Beis HaMikdash. They actually apply in the Holy Land, and they apply anywhere in the world. There is a difference, however. In Eretz Yisrael, the halacha l'mayshem Messinai is that Suffolk Arla Asr. Meaning, if you come into a store, and there's a question whether these fruits are Arla or not, so if there's a doubt, you're not allowed to eat them, unless you're certain that the tree already matured above three years. Outside of Eretz Yisrael, however... All Suffolk Arla is mutter. Any doubt of Arla is permissible, and that's why there's never an issue outside of Eretz Yisrael going into a fruit store or going into a yard and taking a fruit if you have permission, of course, or buying a fruit even though, who knows, maybe it's within the three years, why don't you make an investigation? And the answer is Suffolk Arla and Chutz Laaretz is mutter. If it's a doubt, if it's Arla, it's permissible, but if it's Vaday Arla, if you're growing your own tree, your own apple tree in your backyard, or any tree, and the saplings produce something within the three years, even if it's edible, which again is unusual, and even if it produces a fruit which you could eat, and you want to eat, even though it may not be that healthy the first three years, you would not allow to eat it because it is Arla, even though it's outside of the Holy Land. But as I said, in the Holy Land, you have to be careful even with Suffolk Arla, even with that which is questionable Arla, not only if it's certain Arla, if it's certain Arla, it's forbidden everywhere. What is the reason for this mitzvah? On a literal level, the Sefer HaChinuch says, gives a few reasons. One of the reasons is that usually the first three years, the fruits are not healthy. They're not good for the body. That's one explanation he gives. Another explanation he gives is that uh, the first fruits that a tree produces should go to Yerushalayim. They should be dedicated to Hashem, to the Creator of the world. And since the first three years, the fruits are usually mediocre and of inferior quality, and even if they grow, they're very few, it would be disrespectful to give that to the Rebbeinu Shalom, so to speak. So therefore you wait for the fourth year, and anything before that is off limits, because the first gift should be given to God, and the first gift should be an honorable gift, which only begins four years and up, and then the fifth year, it's free for everybody to use as they wish. Those are... Oh, thank you. Give me one copy also. Give me one copy also. If you could take one and distribute it. Take one and distribute it, please. The fifth year, as we said, it's free. Everybody could use it as they wish. That is, that, those are some of the basic explanations in Sefer HaChinuch. The Sif Sekai and the Shach Al-Hatayra, 
his commentary on Torah, adds another interpretation based on the world of Drush, homiletics. And he says as follows. If you could take one and distribute it, please. He says as follows. Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, were commanded when they were created to eat from all the fruits in the Garden of Eden, in Gan Eden. But one tree was off limits. That was known as the Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge. What type of tree was it? There are different opinions, whether it was a grapevine, whether it was an estric tree, whether it was a fig tree. One opinion is that it was chita, it was stalk of wheat. What's interesting though is, the commandment not to eat the tree was for three hours. Adam and Chava were created Friday afternoon at the ninth hour. And the commandment was to abstain from eating this tree for three hours. In fact, as it's brought in Midrashim, the Eight Sadas, the tree of knowledge, according to many opinions, was a geffen, it was a vine, it was a grapevine. And if Adam would have waited for three hours, Shabbos would have arrived. And then he should have taken the tree, squeezed out the grapes to turn them into wine and make Kiddush on that wine. And then not only would have it not been forbidden, on the contrary, it would have been sanctified. The challenge of Adam and Chava was they ate the tree prematurely. In other words, three hours early, Chava took the vine, the grape, squeezed wine, and gave it to Adam to drink, just like she drank herself. So the Sif Sekoy and the Shachal HaTorah says that Arla is based on that. Adam did not wait three hours. We wait three years. He did not hold back three hours. We hold back from eating the fruit three years. In fact, the Medrash says on the mitzvah of Arla, Hashem says, Who will reveal and expose the earth from your eyes? Adam Arishan, look at your children. They wait for three years to eat the fruits. You couldn't wait for three hours. That's another interpretation. When it comes to Arla, there is an isolated halacha, a law. At first glance, it seems very technical, and it is technical. It's pragmatic, practical, and technical. We're going to study that law and then explore its psychological, spiritual, and historic dimensions. For, for starters, it's a fascinating idea. Besides, it gives us a glimpse into how to study halacha, how to understand halacha, how to see a law within Judaism. The first part of this class is going to be boring. It's going to be monotonous. If you shut down, I understand. Okay? The second half, those who shut down will hopefully wake up. At least, Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach. What we're going to explore today is, if you'll see in the title of this class, Maintaining Your Inner Identity During Stressful Times. If none of you ever have stressful moments, you could leave the class now. What an agricultural law teaches us about psychological serenity and historical endurance. Let's read together the first source. You have the Pesukim about Arla, but that I went through already verbally, so we'll go to source number two. It's a Mishnah. In Masechta Arla, Perik Aleph, Mishnah Vav. Tractate Arla, chapter one, Mishnah six. I'm going to read it in Hebrew. 
and then translate it, you have an English translation on the left. If a sapling of Arla is planted with other saplings and it gets mixed up, one cannot harvest any of his or her saplings, unfortunately. If they were harvested, as long as... It got here misformatted a little bit. You see the words in Hebrew got a little misformatted. I'm going to do this again. If saplings of Arla got mixed with other saplings, you can't harvest any of them. If you did harvest, they can be nullified by the ratio of 1 to 100. As long as the person didn't intentionally try to harvest. Rabbi Yossi says, no, you can harvest intentionally and it's going to be nullified in the ratio of 1 to 200. You understand what this is saying? No. Good. So let me explain. Okay, I'm glad I can be useful for something this morning. To explain the Mishnah, we'll learn a little Torah. I have a sapling, I have a little tree, let's call it an apple tree, in my backyard. It's within three years, and it produces a little cute, tiny apple. This apple is forbidden to eat. So I take the apple, and guess what? Somebody's trying to clean the house, my mate is trying to clean the house, and there is a whole box of apples that I bought from the store or that I harvested from other trees, and she throws this apple into the box of apples. What happens? One apple is forbidden. It's Arla. It grew within the first three years of the tree. All the other apples are absolutely permissible. If I could recognize the Arla apple from the other apples, of course, it's not a problem. I take out the apple, I throw it out, I burn it, and I can eat the rest of the apples. But what happens if I cannot recognize one apple from any other apple? What do we do? Do we say all the apples are forbidden, they all go to the garbage, or we can do something else? The answer to this is, biblically, there is a concept called bitl beroiv. You get nullified, the minority gets nullified in the majority. So if it's one to two, you're good. If there's two kosher apples and one non-kosher apple, you're good. The rabbis learned and said, no, you need a ratio of one to two hundred. If there are 200 apples in the box, the Arla apple is considered nullified. It loses its identity within the overwhelming majority, and you can eat the apples. If there's only 199 apples in the box, far fallen, there's nothing you can do. All the apples have to go. Why? Because the Arla apple is not nullified. There's no 200 apples. Sometimes we say nullification happens with a ratio from 1 to 60. That's, but that's not by Arla. That's not by Arla. That's, for example, meat, milk, non-kosher meat, non-kosher milk, etc. Sometimes we say, this bitl, one in a hundred. That's truma. By Arla, it's one umasayim. Echad umasayim, one to two hundred. Granted, okay, that's the halach. Same is true with wine. I have grapes, and these grapes grew within the first three years. I crush the grapes and turn them into wine. This wine is Arla, I can't drink them. But somebody sees a little cup of wine that's Arla, and then you have a big barrel of wine, 
and he pours this wine into the big barrel of wine. What do I do? The answer is, if there were 200 ounces of kosher wine, the one ounce of Arla wine gets nullified, you're good to go. What if there were only 199 ounces of kosher wine? The one ounce of Arla wine invalidates, disqualifies all the wine. Clear. This is an intro to understand the Mishnah. Here is the problem now. I have a garden, and I have a bunch of trees that I planted. One was planted later than the other ones. And I forget which one was planted last. So I have, let's say, 300 trees in my orchard. 300. All of them are already past the three-year mark. So all of them are good. One of them, and I don't know which one, if I would know which one is no issue, is still younger than three years. Maybe a month younger, maybe a few months younger. can be too many years younger because then you would easily recognize one from the other. What do I do? There's a problem now. What's the problem? I don't know which tree is Arla. There's 300 trees, or 200 trees, or 50 trees, or 1,000 trees. I don't know which one is Arla. That's the case. Nitiya shal Arla. You have a sapling of Arla, and it got mixed in with all the other saplings, and the other saplings are kosher. So what does the Mishnah say? Lo yilaket. You can't harvest your fruits. Why can't you harvest, harvest your fruits? We have a halacha, ein mevatlin iser lechatchila. You can't go ahead and nullify something that's forbidden. I can't take milk and pour it into the cholent and say, oh, it's a ratio from 1 to 60. You don't do this initially. If milk fell in, okay. But you don't go and pour milk into a fleshika cholent just for it to get nullified. I don't take an apple of oil and throw it into a box of 200 apples and say it's going to become kosher. If it fell in, it's kosher. But you don't do this lechatchila. It's not the way to go. You're not allowed to nullify an iser lechatchila. What's going to happen if I harvest all the saplings? What's going to happen? All the fruits are going to be harvested. What am I actually doing? I'm mixing up arla fruits with other fruits. Even if there are 200 trees, fine. But I'm not allowed to lechatchila initially go and mix arla fruits into other fruits. So that's why the Mishnah says, Lo yalakit, you can't harvest. There's nothing you can do with these fruits. If there are less than 200 trees, then it won't even help because I don't have enough to nullify the Arla. But even if I have 300 kosher trees and 10 Arla trees, and I don't know what's what, the Mishnah says don't harvest any of them because if you harvest the fruits and then you start making piles, what are you doing? The Arla is being mixed in through your conscious deeds into the other non-kosher fruits. You're not allowed to do this. But the Mishnah says, what if you did it? What if you went, you didn't know, and you harvested it. And then you come running to the rabbi and you say, Oi, there's a bunch of Arla fruits and I don't know which one they are. He says, take a look. If it's a ratio of 200 to 1, if it's 200 saplings to 1 sapling, you're good to go. That's the halacha of the Mishnah. Is it clear? Okay. Here, there's an obvious question. What's the question? No, what's the question? Right, so that's why you don't harvest it. Because lechatchila, you're not supposed to nullify a forbidden food. If it fell in, okay. But it's not something you go do initially. You can't. Even if there are 200 saplings, you can't. If you did, 
they get mixed up, and then you can eat all of them. If you did, you understand? If you did, not you do it. Take a look in the English, you have it. I'm going to read the English to you again. If a sapling of Arla is planted with other saplings and it gets mixed up, none can be harvested. But if they were harvested, as long as they were not picked deliberately, the Arla can be nullified by the ratio of 1 to 200. Right, if the person does it intentionally, then we penalize them. But if they did it by mistake, you know, they're used to harvesting, and then they say, ooh, there was an Arla tree. We say, listen, it got mixed up, you're good. We're talking about honest people. If somebody doesn't care about it, then we don't know. A person could say, I did it by mistake, there's no way to prove him. We will not, we will not uh, put him on one of those uh, yeah, lie detectors tests. It's about you and yourself. Judaism believes in a concept that honesty is a value. You know that, right? Okay. You know it in theory? Okay. Huh? Fine. Here is the problem. Here's the question, okay? What's the question? <laughs> the question is as follows. I usually don't like asking a question if people don't have it, because then it's not a question. But I have no choice. <laughs> so I'm going to ask the question. What does bittel mean? If one apple of Arla fell into 200 apples, it's nullified. So I don't understand. You have here a sapling tree, Around it are another 200 kosher trees. It's already nullified on the tree. Even before you harvest it, it's already bottle. It's already nullified. So it should already be kosher on the tree. What's the difference if you have one isolated apple, it falls into a box of 200 apples, it's mixed up between all the apples, so you say, bottle, nullified. Here too, you have a sapling of Arla, it's escorted, it's accompanied, it's surrounded by another 199 or more. 200, 201, 210, 300, maybe 1,000 trees. This sapling is mixed up somewhere among all of them. I don't know which one is what. Isn't it already mixed up on the tree? And therefore it's already bottle, it's already nullified. And therefore you should just be able to harvest everything. You're telling me, one second, wait, 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 wait. Wait a second. You're telling me you're not allowed to harvest the trees. Why? Because you are intentionally and deliberately nullifying trafin non-kosher food. But if you did it, if you did it, it's fine. Why? Because the fruits got mixed up. The sapling fruits got mixed up with the other fruits. And once they're mixed up and you can't differentiate, it's bottle. My question to you is that's already on the tree. On the tree already, it's mixed up with all the other trees. And you can't differentiate one from the other. Why don't we say it's bottle based on nature without you doing anything? They're already mixed together. It's nullified. It's already kosher without you doing anything. And therefore, you could go harvest it. Why not? Okay, you're saying you could wait. Since you could wait, that's an interesting answer. Since you could wait, so why do you have to do it? Wait. But the question is, the problem is with all the other trees you may not be able to wait. You're going to lose all those fruit. I got it. You're saying once the fruit is off the tree, and I'm asking why. Why is it not bottle when it's on the tree? On the contrary, if it's all part of the earth, so then it's one entity. On the contrary, you're making the question stronger. Zakh Rashi. You see Rashi, I'm going to read him inside. Do not harvest it. It says Rashi. The calls manshi bimekoima. 
kimechubar chashiva v'loi botla. V'chilokit lepedis u'mevatelu b'masayim heve mevatel isa English on the left. As long as the sapling is planted, it's considered connected. And it cannot be nullified. Therefore, only when you harvest the fruits are you deliberately abolishing the prohibition. What is Rashi teaching us? When a fruit is connected to the ground, to the earth, even if you don't know the nature of the sapling, you don't know how old it is, you don't know how old the fruits are, and it's mixed up with all other trees, it can't be considered nullified. It will never be nullified. It can't be considered lost, quote-unquote, in the other fruits. What, does, what has to happen in order to nullify the fruits? You have to harvest them. The moment they become detached from their organic source in the earth, they're not considered mechubar. They're not connected. Because they're not connected, Rashi says, now it's already a numbers game. Now it's a numbers game. Now it's statistics. If it's 200 to 1, boom, you're done. You're not counted. You're insignificant. You're lost in the majority. 200 is a big, big number to compete with. Try one person wrestling 200 people. It's a little tough. Even if this one person is strong, but it's 200 people. One fruit in 200, it's tough. Imagine a child comes from another school and comes into a grade with 200 girls. And he is or she is the only one, the only new one. It's very hard to maintain your identity. Imagine a refugee comes from another country, comes into a community and everybody there is native. Hundreds of people. You naturally lose something of your identity. It becomes a numbers game. That's all if the tree, if the fruit is disconnected. As long as the fruit is connected, I don't care if there are a hundred thousand trees. Theoretically, you can have one million trees. One million to one. Shouldn't that be called bittel? It's not bottle. And that's why you can't harvest. You know why you can't harvest? Because I don't care if there's a million fruits that are kosher, but this one tree maintains its identity in its full strength, and therefore it's not considered halachically nullified. Once you harvest the fruits, they become disconnected. Now, if you have 200 to 1, is good. That explains the Mishnah. Don't harvest the trees. Why can't you harvest? Because you have Arla. Even though it's only one, but it's one, it's something, I can't eat any of them. Unfortunately, next time, as you say, i got to be careful. What if I harvest it already? Now, if there's 200 to 1, they're all kosher. This is what Rashi is explaining to us. You're saying the tree on the fruit is in a state of potential. The tree when harvested, fruit when harvested, is in a state of actualization. That's a lovely insight. But here we're talking about even a fruit that's perfectly ripe. It's perfectly ripe on the tree. You're talking about Chamisha Asa B'Shvat, the 15th of Shvat, called Rosh Hashanah of trees. You go out to your tree and it's covered with snow and ice, and you say, this is the Rosh Hashanah of trees. It's moments of hibernation. These are moments the trees look depressed. They're orphaned. This is where we say, potential. Rosh Hashanah is based on potential. But here we're talking about, that's a class for Chamisha Asa You put it for then. 
but, uh, but it's an important idea. Here we're talking about the fruit is ripe, it's ready, so it's already actualization. But you're right, it's still on the tree. But it's already only, it's more than a state of potential. Mechubar, mechubar means that the tree is connected to its roots, because it's still connected to its tree. Once you harvest it, the tree, the fruit is plucked, it's disconnected from its roots, from its own source of vitality and energy. Put it simply, it can't continue to grow. It's lifeless. But that's how you eat it. There's no choice. You know, when you pluck, when you harvest a tree, when you detach a fruit from its source, it's a very significant activity. People take these things for granted. They tear off leaves. They tear off branches. They tear off a tomato. They tear off an orange. They tear off a fig. It's really a very, very profound experience. And that's why mindfulness is so important, because it's really traumatic on some level. Think about if you were the fruit. Ki ha'adam eats hasada. A person is compared to the tree of a field. So it's a very, very significant idea. You see from here that the halacha completely changes. It's a different fruit when it's on the tree, and it's a different fruit when it's detached from the tree. In fact, our justification to pluck fruits our justification to harvest vegetables, to kill tomatoes and cucumbers, is only if, as a result of that detachment, we're going to attach it to its ultimate source. If we don't attach it to its ultimate source, then we have to ask ourselves the moral question, who gave me a right to end the life of this orange? It becomes, of course, more dramatic when you're dealing with living creatures that are visibly alive, whether it's fish, chickens, animals, etc., etc. Okay. Now, let's go to the next step. What we have here on a halachic level is really reflective of not just a law in technical reality of kashrus, of arla, but also a law of the soul. This is a Torah halacha in the nefesh, in the soul. And the reason this is a law in practicality is because it mirrors and reflects an emotional law, a spiritual law, a psychological law. And the law goes exactly the same way. Mechubar loy bottle. Meaning, in life, every person is often bombarded by many forces without and many voices within. The fact is, a human life, especially as we grow, we develop, and we assume various responsibilities, personal responsibilities, familial responsibilities, communal responsibilities, social responsibilities, smaller or larger, very often a life is bombarded and overwhelmed by so many responsibilities, by so many relationships, by so many interactions, by so many pressures, by so many stressful experiences. You look at people's calendars, what they have to do in a day, and you could get a headache and a migraine just from looking what they're trying to accomplish in one day. Of course, the calendar usually goes over the next day and the next day and the next day because it usually takes seven, eight years to finish everything you wanted to do as a good Jew within the next two and a half hours till the kids come home today. Even though it's usually avoided for seven years. Now, some people get things done quite amazingly. But it's very easy in life to become overwhelmed. We become overwhelmed by ourselves. We become overwhelmed by others. You become overwhelmed in a practical sense. 
There's so many things on the schedule, so many duties, so many responsibilities, so many things to attend to. You don't know what to do first, and you often simply melt from the pressure. People end up in disarray, in anarchy. They disintegrate. They lose their temperamental equilibrium. Was that good? Okay. Should I try it again? or Fine, good. The second time may not come out so well. And they lose a sense of balance, of inner emotional stability. Especially times when there's a little extra pressure. For good reasons, for example, you're making a simcha. People sometimes, you would think it's one of the, it should be one of the happiest days of their life. Sometimes it's painful. Somebody once told me, a big therapist once told me, he says that, uh, you know, you come to a wedding and you would think that the parents of the groom and the bride should be the happiest people there. But sometimes the pressures are so intense and nothing ever goes perfect. The caterer said he's going to do this. And of course, he did this. And the florist brought the wrong flowers. And Nebuch, the sushi bar was missing what was important. And this didn't come out right. And that didn't come out right. And this one came late. And that one came late. And then there is the financial pressure. And then there's, sometimes there's arguments. Who's getting the last bracha under the chuppah? Who's getting the last bracha under the chuppah? Who? Who's the edis? Who's going to read the ksuva? Sometimes the simchas are so filled with pressure. And she said, I made a sheva brachas for her, and now she's not making a sheva brachas for me. And then comes Shabbos sheva brachas. And this is not ready, and this one wasn't invited, and this one is upset because he was put on table three, not on table two. Rachman al-Itzlan, the Ebersh Tazalaisit, and he was put on table three. Can you imagine the identity crisis, the disrespect for this human being, table three, not table two? Can you imagine? And that's enough not to be on speaking terms for 22 years. Kenega table two. And so, and so then there's other things that happen in life. And what if there's a crisis, chas v'shalom? If there's a challenge and a person is running from here to here, even mothers and women who are general experts in multitasking and having one phone in the right ear and another phone in the left ear, plus an iPhone to uh, whatever type of phone, to communicate to a third person, plus finishing the kugel for Shabbos, even multitaskers often disintegrate emotionally from the pressures without, and then what is even deeper, the many voices from within. Voices of guilt, voices of fear, voices of insecurity, voices of pain, voices of stress, voices of anxiety, never mind if there was trauma in one's life. So the Mishnah is telling us a law. And the law is this. If you are disconnected from your own source, from your own roots, from your own core identity, then it becomes a numbers game. The moment you will be one in 200, you will cease to exist. And the pain of that will be very, very powerful. Conversely, if you are connected to your roots, if you're connected to your source of vitality, there may be one million trees that are trying to overwhelm you. There may be 10 million trees that are different than you, and essentially they are telling you, come on, why don't you just chill out and melt into the majority? This field is a melting pot. Why don't you just assimilate and forfeit yourself? If you're disconnected, that is bound to happen. 
psychologically and emotionally. If you're connected, it doesn't matter how many trees are different, you will never ever become bottled, meaning you will never be lost, never be nullified, never be overwhelmed by all these major forces because you do not define yourself by that which is outside of you. You define yourself by that which is inside of you. And that's the key secret of bittel and halacha. What does bittel mean? Bittel means when a refugee falls into a melting pot where everybody is different, it's impossible for him or her to resist the influence. It doesn't happen. This is the law of all of history. It's also psychologically and emotionally. We are social creatures. We are creatures who conform. We're creatures who are affected by social norms. We're affected by the opinions of the people around us, by the opinions of our neighbors, of our community members, and also by our own opinions that are influenced by all of these influences, and then we call them our own opinions. There are voices in ourselves that contradict each other because many of those voices are alien voices. And you look and you say, everybody does it this way. How can I not do it this way? Erev Pesach, it's a mitzvah to be miserable. How can I be the only one who's happy? Erev Sukkot, it's a mitzvah to be anxious. How can I be the only one who's happy? Erev Shabbos, it's a mitzvah to be in a bad mood. How can I be the only one? I'm not going to be the only Apikiris, the only heretic who's actually going to go exercise Erev Shabbos, Erev Pesach, Erev Sukkot. I'm going to walk around the lake or I'm going to go swimming, or I'm going to do what I have to do so I should be able to be a better human being, a better mother, a better wife. This is heresy. This is not Jewish. You're supposed to be miserable. Mitzvah g'dayla miserable tamit. If not miserable, at least anxious. If not anxious, at least semi-anxious. If not semi-anxious, at the verge of an explosion. But at least at the verge. You want a person to actually look at life and say that the purpose of life is to be in a state of wholesome dveikus with Ein Soif. Wholesome oneness with infinity. Who speaks like this? Especially if you're Jew. You're a chronic complainer by definition. I was lecturing the other day, so somebody gets up and says that they are disturbed by the racism in Shemayna Esra. And I heard a lot of questions. I never heard about racism in Shemayna Esra. I say I do Shemayna Esra a few times a day. And I, I know the translation of the words. I think, I think at least I knew the translation. I thought I knew. I say, where's the racism? He says, every day, Rifa'enu Hashem Rafe. God, heal us. Help us. You're the healer. Help us heal. Baruch Hashem. Amoy Yisrael. God heals the ill among his nation, Israel. What do you mean? What about all peoples? Doesn't he heal the sick of all peoples? This was the middle of a lecture. So I said, let me ask you a question. You think the Anshek Nessa the great sages who wrote the, 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 the text, they didn't know or believe that God is the healer of all humanity? The Tanakh is filled with this message. He's the creator of all humanity. And not just humanity, the entire cosmos including humanity, and is the healer of all humanity. I said, well, why is the question bothering you? Is the question is bothering him because he is a convert, he used to be not Jewish, he still has family members who are not Jewish, and it's bothering him. I said, tell your family members that this is a compliment. 
They're lucky they're not included in this blessing. He says, why? I said, Pasha, doesn't necessarily mean a Jew who's specially sick with a diagnosis. It's an innate chronic condition. Did you ever meet a Jew who doesn't complain about his or her health? I'm still looking for that Jew. My neck hurts. I have back pains. I almost had a stroke yesterday. I'm having a heart attack tomorrow. My ankle, my foot, I used to this. Every Jew, my stomach ache. I'm nauseous recently. I started to eat this. Every Jew is always changing their diets. From Monday to Monday, it's a different diet. I'm depressed. There's carbs, there's sugar, there's too much this. I'm going on V. Everybody is always choyle, I'm a Yisrael. I said, Baruch Hashem, you're a go, you're lucky. You're a lucky person. You just walk around. You don't complain. Life is good. It's perfect. I'm healthy. You ever asked a Jew how is life? And he said, perfect? Did it ever happen to you in your life? How is life? Perfect. The best you'll get is not too bad. And it means he made $10 million that day. Trust me. Not too bad means the guy made $10 million that day. Then you'll get Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. So we say a special blessing. God, help the Jewish people. They think somehow, if there's a little dysfunction, it's holy. If there's a little misery, it's religious. But it's not the way. It's exactly the other way around. It's not supposed to be that way. It's exactly the other way around. If you're connected to your own shirish, you're never bottle. It doesn't mean I don't have a hundred responsibilities. It doesn't mean there's no stressful conditions. But it means you live life from within, not from without. You show up to life with your inner core, with your inner presence. And when you show up to life with your inner core, with your inner presence, even if there are 2,000, even if there are 2 million things coming at you, blowing in your face, and you should fall apart, you'll never fall apart. Why? Because you're mechubar. Because you're connected to yourself. So that's why Hashem tells Avraham, the first commandment to the first Jew is, Lech, Lecha. What's Lech, Lecha? You don't go to you. You go with you. You go from your, Lech, lech Me'artz. What's Lech, Lecha? So the al says, and many Mepharshim say, Lech, Lecha, Lemekarcha, Visharshecha. Go back to your own roots. Go back to yourself. Lech lecha. Always look and ask yourself, are you connected to your tree, to your source of life? And your source of life is not my source of life. Yes, we all have one source of life, but every tree has its own unique roots. Your neshama has its shayrish in Hashem, my neshama has its roots in God. All the trees are connected. The earth connects us all. But there's a concept of lech lecha. Before Avram is about to uproot himself, Hashem says, lech lecha. Go to you. Because if you're by you, you'll never be uprooted. You will always be, you will always be rooted. Now, I'll uh, share with you something... Uh, very unique and special where this played itself out in the life of an individual. Maybe also an interesting day uh, to share this story as well. 
the third president of Israel was a na man named Zalman Shazar. Zalman Shazar. Okay? I wasn't planning to share this story, but it came into me. And it's very, uh, it's very apropos for this message. Okay. Zalman Shazar's name, Zalman Shazar's name, his full name was Schneir Zalman Rubashov. Rubashov is too much of a Russian Jewish shtetl name. So like many of the early Chalutzim, he had to Hebraicize his name and it became Shazar, which is an acronym for Schneir Zalman Rubashov. Like all of the early Chalutzim and Zionists, he came from a very religious family, got a Jewish education, but like most of them, he abandoned Yiddishkeit at some young stage in his life and dedicated his life to go build what he dreamt to become a new state for the Jews, but this is the early 1900s. In fact, his name was after the Baal HaTanya. Shnei Zalman is a name after the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, the Baal because that's where his family came from, in fact, his elder Zayda, his name was Ripshol, was a chassid directly of the Balatanya, and they named him that name. Shnei Zalman Shazar grew up. He left the path of Judaism. He ultimately made Aliyah as one of the early chalutzim to sit in the trenches and to build the country and make the desert bloom. They were attacked by malaria and chalaria and all of the horrible illnesses that claimed many lives. But this was their dedication. The Jewish faith and heritage was replaced with a strong sense of nationalism, and hence it stirred up such a debate and controversy in the Jewish world, the debate around the Zionist movement, which is beyond the realm of this sheer and lecture. The last Shabbos before he was to leave to what was then called Palestine, this is the early 1900s, it was then called Palestine. It was under the Ottoman Empire, under the Turks, before the First World War. He decides he's going to go one Shabbos to spend the Shabbos with his Zayda, a Hasidic Jew, a Hasidic Jew, in the city of Demir. You, were, you, were, you all heard of Demir Yeshiva. It's not, the name is not Mir, the name is Demir. Demir is a little city in Lithuania. That's where Demir Yeshiva came from. It escaped to... Uh, Japan and Shanghai, and then went to Israel, where it rebuilt itself after the war, some to the Holy Land, some to America, some to other places. Of course, uh, most of the Jews of Demir, like most of the Jews of Lithuania and Belarus, were exterminated by the Germans, and his Zayda lived in Demir. And Zalman Shazar writes in his diary how he went for that Shabbos to his Zayda. But there was two worlds apart. He was this young, secular, socialist, left-wing Mapainik, who would become the first education minister of Israel, who would serve as the president of Israel, who was a very deeply secular Jew, a poet, a philosopher, a great orator, but somebody who saw the future of Jewish destiny, not in Yiddishkeit, not in Ablad Gemara, and not in Asimun and Shulchan Aruch. And his Zayda, who was the old Jew of the shtetl, who has a long beard with payas, and follows the observance, and you have to understand... 50, maybe 60, some say more percent of the Jewish people have left 
Judaism during those decades. When you speak about the old world before the war, 50-60% of the Jewish people have left Judaism. The youth did not see the future in Judaism. There were many other isms going on. You had socialism, you had, of course, many other isms. Judaism was not a popularism at the time, besides for a minority. And so, Shazar, out of respect to his grandparents, is going to go there for one Shabbos. He describes the Shabbos in dramatic prose and very romantic phraseology. Going to the mikveh with his Zaydish Friday afternoon, sitting down in shul and singing Shir Hashidim together, learning before davening, a beautiful lichadoidi singing and dancing, the meal of Shabbos that had no trace of anything going on in the outer world. It was filled with divrei Torah, with words of Torah and Nigunim. Waking up Shabbos early in the morning, going to the mikveh, he goes with his Zayda to shul two hours before Shachris and he's learning with him Lakute Torah, of the Baal HaTanya, his great magnum opus, his Hasidic work, davening Shachras back to lunch, there's no trace of anything outside the world of Shabbos in this little shtetl where these Jews lived in a continuous orbit of oneness with God and with their Judaism. Mitzoy Shabbos Malavamalka, Sunday morning, Shachras, breakfast, it's time to go. There was no train station in the mirror. How would you travel? There was a region, a section where the Baliagolis would stand. Uh, the wagoneers, you would pay one of the wagoneers, he would take you to a nearby city where there was a train, he would get on a train, the train would ultimately take him out of Eastern Europe, of the regions of Russia and Lithuania, take him to Turkey. From Turkey he would ultimately travel to uh, Eretzisho, which was called Palestine, and he would settle. His grandfather escorts him with his chamadan, with his chimadan, with his uh, suitcase to the wagoneer. His grandfather is an old man. He's in his 80s. Shazar is approximately 16 years old, a young, fiery, idealistic, passionate, Zionistic chalutz, as they called them. Chalutzim, they were the, huh? the pioneers, the pioneers, yeah. And he says, my Zayda looked at me and he said, Zalman, I know you're going on a journey. I know you're going on a journey. And I know the journey is going to take you to interesting places where I never went. I want to tell you a tradition that I have from generations. There are three types of nigunim. There are three types of songs that will make it into your mind, that will enter into your life. There is a song, you hear it, you love it. It's beautiful. And then a week later, a month later, you want to remind yourself the song. And you can't. You can't. It's just not coming back to you. That song is not your song. Your soul is not rooted in that melody. It's a beautiful melody, but it's not yours. He says there's another song. You hear it. It's awesome. It's great. And it doesn't stop playing in your brains like a mosquito. Shabbos afternoon when you're trying to nap outside. You want to get rid of it and you can't. He says, that song is not your song. Your soul is not rooted there. One left you and one drives you crazy. There's a third song. You hear it. You're in awe. You're in love. And then you move on. But whenever you need, this song is available for you. 
That song is the niggin in which your neshama originates in. Every soul has a melody that it comes from. That niggin is your neshama's niggin. And he said, Zalman, why am I telling this to you? So he said these words. Your name is Shnei Zalman. You were named after the Balatanya. The Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, composed a song. In Chabad, it's known as their most sacred song. It's called the Nigan of the Dalat Babas, the four stanzas. They usually sing it only at chuppas and at weddings, at brisin, and at unique, unique, unique situations. Your Tzkislev, Rosh Hashanah, and other such times. It's known as the Nigan of the Dalat, the four stanzas, that he composed parallel to the four worlds, known as Atzilas, Bri, Yitzir, You probably heard the Nigan. It's known as the Alter Rebbe's Nigan. He said, We have a tradition, he tells to his grandson, that Chabad, Hasidim, their soul is rooted in that Nigan. He said, Since you're part of this family and it's your name, it means your soul is rooted in this Nigan. So I tell you, my dear grandson, you're going on a journey. This journey will take you to interesting places. At every important moment in life, sing this niggin. If the niggin comes to you, you're good. If the niggin doesn't come to you, it means you have become detached from the roots of your soul. Reevaluate your life. And he said, and now the Gemara says, You don't leave. You don't say goodbye only with a halacha. He says, my grandfather quoted a Rambam in Hilchis Trumas about the halachas of Trumas since I'm going to Israel. He asked a question on it. He gave an answer. He gave me a kiss on my forehead. And he said goodbye. And our ways parted. So I went on the coach. I went off to the Holy Land. I arrived there a month or two later, and he said a few weeks later I got a telegram from my mother that my grandfather passed away. He writes in the early 70s as the president of Israel, a secular state. He says, those words of my grandfather never left me. Whenever I stand at a fork in my life, and I have two ways to go, all the people around me know, I tell them I need a few minutes before I make a decision. I close the door and I sing the niggin of the Alter Rebbe from beginning to end. If it doesn't come to me, I start from scratch. As we would say, I press control, alt, delete. I say I have to reevaluate everything. If it comes to me, I feel like that the Alter Rebbe is holding me in his bosom. He is caressing me and he's giving me the confidence and empowerment to move on with my decision. This he wrote in his diary. I heard this years ago from my late father, Zechernel of Rocha, who heard it from President Shazar years and years ago. This I heard from my father. The story, though, has an epilogue, which is my own addition. Zalman Shazar, over the years, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, living in New York, developed a correspondence with him. And they became extremely close friends. To the point that as president of Israel, he came to visit the Rebbe a few times, despite the tremendous protest of many personalities who said, 
the Rebbe should go to the president, the president shouldn't go to the Rebbe. But he came anyway. The last time he came was 1973. He came for Yud Beis Tammuz. He sat. He sat throughout the Rebbe's Fabrengen. It's the Chagagul of his father-in-law, the Rayats in Russia. He sat, he maybe spoke for, I don't know, it was a Fabrengen. Again, he went for seven, eight, or nine hours. And Shazar was an old man, he sat there. He sat till two or three in the morning. And then he had a private audience with the Rebbe for the rest of the night. At the end of the Fabrengen, the Rebbe asked that they should sing the Alter Rebbe's Nigen. They started to sing it. The Alter Rebbe's Nigen has a point where you could repeat it. The highest stanza, it reaches a crescendo, you could do it again, if you wish. So the Rebbe went like this, they should do it ten times. Ten times. Ten times. Whoever noticed Zalman Shazar, they saw that he was transported to a different place. The conversation he had with his grandfather was approximately the year 1915. 1916. This is almost a century later. Two world wars. A world wiped out, including his world. A Jewish nation transformed. Almost 70 years later, in 73, he's sitting in a place that resembled his old roots where he ran away from. And they were singing this niggin ten times. And he sat, and you could see, the man was in a trance. Unless you knew the story, you couldn't understand why Shazar was so affected by the niggin. It was almost like, literally, a homecoming. And in many ways he changed his life. And the amount of things that the Rebbe accomplished in Israel because of him secretly were incredible in terms of education, in terms of Torah, in terms of mitzvahs, in t- tremendous influence because, because of that very, very deep and intimate connection. What was his grandfather telling him? In other words, everybody has a niggin. And in life you have to be able to be connected to your niggin to your roots, to your soul, to your relationship with Hashem. That's why a person wakes up in the morning, you very often, what do people do today in the morning? The first thing, they check their emails. It's one of the worst things you could do for yourself. You know why? The first thing that defines you in the morning is what somebody else wrote. That means immediately you gave up your soul to foreign influence. The whole day could be affected by that. The moment you wake up in the morning, you have to align yourself with your shayrish. You have to make sure you're mechubar. That's what maidani is. That's what prayer is. That's what study is. Or whatever the methods, that and other methods, that you can do in order to completely remain loyal to your spiritual, psychological, emotional, and physical core. All of them. Then you step into the world from a place of inner empowerment and confidence. There may be some tough stuff to deal with. There may be some stuff, you know, balls that you got to dodge. But because you're in your own core, you won't falter, you won't melt. If you wish, this is an explanation, maybe the only explanation, for the enigma of Jewish history. It's really senseless. 
Whenever you have a group of refugees who are sent away from their native country, they come into a new country where they are the minority, what happens? After 10, 20, 50, 100 years, they melt, they assimilate. You can't expect anything to be otherwise. What happened to the greatest empires of history? Where is the Egyptian empire? What happened to the Assyrian empire? What happened to the Babylonian empire, the Persian empire, the Greeks, the Romans? The answer is another empire came, overwhelmed and defeated them, and after decades, they just melt away. That's what happens. In 1989, the Dalai Lama summoned a group of Jews, and he asked the following question. The Dalai Lama is the head of the Buddhist tribe. They had a native country. It was called Tibet. They were exiled by the Chinese. And he said it's one generation later, and he doesn't see how he can have the, great, the, the descendants maintain that identity on foreign soil. So he's calling the Jews who managed to do it for 2,000 years on foreign soil. Now this would be unique even if the minority wasn't persecuted. If the minority was persecuted, they should certainly be overwhelmed. They should certainly be nullified. They should certainly experience bittel. According to halacha, there's bittel b'shishim. 1 to 60, 1 to 100, 1 to 200. What about 1 to 1,000? 1 to 10,000? 1 to a million? Do you know the percent of the Jewish people in contrast to the rest of humanity? Anybody? (laughs) The answer is less than a quarter of 1%. You're talking about (laughs) Bittal? Less than a quarter. It's not even a half a percent. It's not even a quarter of a percent. By all the laws of Bittal. We should have been lost, forfeited, melted, subsumed, submerged, nullified, obliterated in the majority. How not? The answer is, the answer is, ah, mechubar loy bottle. When you're connected to the source of vitality, you don't get obliterated, even if it's one to a million. You can only be obliterated and nullified if you're in a state of weakness where you allow yourself to be overwhelmed. But when you're connected to that core, which endures and exists, you can't be nullified. That's what the Pasuk says in Malachi. The last prophet of the Jewish people was Malachi. The last book of Tanakh. And he says in chapter 3, I, God, have not changed, and you have not perished. What's the connection? It's the same thing. Because I have not changed, meaning, I don't change with the weather, I don't change with the change of presidents, with the change of empires, with the change of climate. There's eternity. You're connected. So you don't perish. I, the majority, is overwhelming. That law can only exist when you're vulnerable as a result of disconnection. When you're connected with Hashem, when you're connected with the Ein Saif, when you're connected with the source of eternity, you live in a world of eternity. 
You don't only live in history, you also live in meta-history. Jews live on two levels of history. In history, and what they call meta-history. Above history, in a state of eternity. On one level, we're living in 2017, Tov Shemai and Zion. On another level, Friday afternoon comes, Shabbos comes, and you light the Shabbos candles, and Sari Menu is alive in her tent, lighting Shabbos candles. Three and a half, four and a half thousand years of history are happening right now. On one level, we're living in the 21st century. On another level, a Jewish child opens up a Mishnah and starts quoting the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, or Rabbi Yehuda, or Rabbi Meir, or Rabbi Shimon, or Rabbi Yossi, or Rabbi Shimon by Yechai, and suddenly he's having a conversation with them. They're right there in the room. You go into a yeshiva, somebody is quoting Abaya and Rava who lived in the 4th century after the Common Era, 16, 1700 years ago, and you start talking to them. I don't understand what you're saying. I do understand what you're saying. Ah, now I get what you're saying. It's a conversation that started with the first Jew and it still continues, which is why we talk a lot. <laughs> it's a long conversation that's going on and on and it doesn't look like it's going to end very soon. You go into Abbas Medish, who are you talking to? You're talking to the Rambam. You're talking to Rashi. We just spoke to Rashi today. Rashi lived 800 years ago, 900 years ago. We have conversations with Rashi on a daily basis. Oh, Rashi, Rashi is a guest in my home every day. How does that happen? We live in two states of history. One is flux. And one is a foundational core that is not subject to change. It's not subject to the whims, to the, to the vicissitudes, to the fluctuations of history, of change. So this is true psychologically, internally, internally, and it's true historically, collectively. Our position as a nation and our position as individuals. Within yourself, if you approach life, if you approach even pain, if you approach even your trauma, if you approach your difficulties, your stressful places, from your own deepest core, which is one with Hashem, First of all, there's always confidence there. There's always optimism there. There's always empowerment there. In his space, there's confidence and there's joy. So whenever you look at yourself and you feel weak and sluggish and depressed and melancholy, you're not in his space. You're detached from his space. And if you're not in his space, then I become extremely vulnerable to what this one says, to what that one says, to this person's opinion, to this person's perspective, and Yedde Yachne Dvosha and Yente has an opinion about everybody. Much before Google, much before Google, we had our own Jewish Google. On everyone, there's an opinion, for especially if you know the family and you know what they did before the war. I remember her, I remember her in the early 50s. He became today the chief rabbi. I remember who he was as a kid. But we have a file on everybody. And people sometimes live their entire life based on this one's perspective, on this one's opinion. Why don't you do this? What are they going to think? Why are you doing this? What are they going to think if I don't do it? And sometimes people sacrifice themselves, their children, their loved ones, their God, their truth, on the sake of idols. And what's the idol? The idol is social conformity. And then you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you see nothing. There's nothing left. All I became is 
I'm a shell, I'm a mouthpiece, all I do is I'm the mouthpiece for other people. That's what happens if you don't have a source. Now, you may not know your source. That's challenging. You have to find it. You have to discover it. At last, we can understand why Arla, why this is taught in the laws of Arla. Could have been taught in many other halachas. Arla is not the only tray for food. The answer is, briefly, because Arla was instituted because of the Eitzadas, because of eating of the tree of knowledge. What happened as a result of the Eitzadas? I'm going to do this very, very brief. Before the tree of knowledge, after the tree of knowledge, everything changed. What's the first question Hashem asks Adam after he eats from the tree? Ayeka. Where are you? Why is that the first question? Before he ate from the tree, there was no question, where are you? He knew exactly where he was. After the tree, he's not sure where he, was, where he is. Till today, we all ask ourselves the question constantly. Ayeka, where are you? And if you could listen silently and subtly, you can hear God asking everybody the same question. Ayeka, where am I? Before the Eitz Hadas, there was no such a thing as being disconnected from your source. There was no dissonance between the inner and the outer. Which is why Adam and Chava could walk around without clothes and not be ashamed. How could you not be ashamed? On the contrary, they were so holy, they should have been more sneezed than anybody. <laughs> the answer is they weren't ashamed. You know why? The whole reason for shame is only when the outer and the inner are not one with each other. When the goof is a vehicle for the soul. So then there's no shame. On the contrary, the body is seen as a full expression of the beauty and the holiness of the soul. Body and soul merge into a seamless whole. After they ate from the eight sadas, there is now a gulf, a separation between your inner core and your outer self. And I could live my whole life detached from who I am. That's the result of the eight sadas. Detached. Because I'm detached, my body also becomes detached. And I have to protect it, that it should not conceal the fact that it is much more than physical. It's really spiritual. So in many ways, the had the tikkun of the Eitz Hadas is what? Realigning the outer with the inner. It's like the light bulb with the light. When you look at the light bulb, you just see light. Why? The light bulb, the glass, is a reflection. It's a channel for the light. The body is a channel for the soul. The physical is a channel for the spiritual. There's no separation between the inner and the outer. After the Eitz there is now work to realign. Since the laws of Arla are meant as a tikkun for the Eitz so that's why it's in the laws of Arla where we discover this truth. What's the truth? That when you remain connected, when you're mechubar, whenever you're connected organically to your own body, to your own soul, to your own identity, and to God, loy bottle. Nothing and nobody can nullify you in the world. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.